All right, and you can uh, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. It's a pretty important text today. Not that they're unimportant ones, but some things go right to it, as they say. So today in our study of 1 John, we've kind of arrived at the section that gets to the meat of his purpose, his purpose for writing. It's clear when you read the whole letter that he's writing to a troubled church, or could be churches. He doesn't identify them. It's probably a number of churches. But a bunch of their fellow church members had been enticed away by the cult of Gnosticism, the first major cult that Christianity had to deal with. They corrupted the doctrine of Christ out of all recognition. And that's why the letter begins as it does. In fact, look back at chapter 1, verse 1, if you would. Um, John was the last remaining eyewitness of Christ to, uh, as the uh, last apostle. And he reminds them right from the beginning there. says, what, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the Gnostics had a different Jesus than the one John personally knew. Um, they're... Jesus was not the word of life become man, not the Jesus that John knew personally, the one that he and the other apostles testified to and proclaimed throughout the world. So John is setting forth Jesus as he really is, and he's reminding the believers that he's writing to that in Christ, they are in fellowship with Christ's people and also with the Father and the Son. And the Gnostics denied almost every aspect of Christianity, all the great truths of the gospel. They denied sin. They dismissed the importance of addressing sin. That wasn't their concern. Maybe even the idea of sin altogether they rejected. Because they were seeking hidden knowledge instead of forgiveness. That's what they were all about. They weren't seeking a relationship with God as wayward creatures of his, but they wanted deliverance from this tainted world through esoteric wisdom and they wrote their own gospels if you've ever read their gospels they're very bizarre and very strange remember they thought they thought the god that made the world was evil verse 5 he says john has to remind them that the, his church he says that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all then in a very clear and simple way, he describes two kinds of people, two broad categories of people who say that they are disciples of Jesus, that they're following Jesus. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So one kind of person claims to be a disciple but walks in darkness, verse 6 says. The other kind of person walks in the light and it is that one who is truly in fellowship with the Christian community and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, 
cleanses that person from all sin. So starting with our text today in chapter 2 verse 3, John's going to take this idea of walking in the light as he himself is in the light and expand on that in very practical ways. So he's going to explain very simple terms who are the real Christians and who are not real Christians because that was an immediate need that had to be addressed in terms of the thinking of believers who had not walked away. So he makes a very clear division. Now John's very black and white. There's a reason for that. Um, There's a lot of grays in terms of people we deal with and what they're like but he doesn't want to get into the complexities of people who are struggling or wavering or having a hard time living for Christ or any of that. That's really a, a subject that's addressed in other places in the New Testament and we'll talk about it in the future. But John is really aiming to describe two divergent paths. That's why he uses the word walk. If you're walking, you're on some kind of trip, right? You're going somewhere. You're moving forward in some direction. So you're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. You can't be, there's, n- there's not a, uh, a, well, it's almost, uh, you know, twilight time. I'm walking in the twilight. I, I, I still see the sun. It, there's none of that here with him. It's, you're walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. And he can say that because one path is the path somebody walks if they've experienced what the Bible calls the new birth. This being born again, this transformation that God does inside of us. The other path is religious and might use Christian terms about oneself but they've never really bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They've never owned him as their Lord and Savior in the sense that the scripture presents that. So I think the people John is writing to who have stayed faithful I think they're kind of shaken, you know, because all these people that have left. Some people who are in their churches decided to join this Gnostic cult. And some of those in the fellowship were probably surprised at some of the people that went off. I've seen that happen before. So they start to ask, well, what is a true Christian, you know, and are are we so easily deceived? And what about me? Uh, 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 Everything to them must have just seemed less sure, you know. Things were kind of up in the air and maybe they questioned their own relationship with God. Is it it real? Am I real? How do we know? So when we experience the new birth, you know, a a very dramatic thing happens in us. But you know what? Our ears don't glow. Um, A a, a sign doesn't appear on our forehead that says belongs to the Lord. We don't, nothing like that happens. So how do we know? And he's going to help them with a very simple, straightforward truth, like a test that they can apply. And the test will help them understand that not everybody who claims a relationship with Christ has a relationship with Christ. So in verse 3, chapter 2, he reminds them of something they may have forgotten. He says, by this we know. What do we know? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's the test. It's a simple sentence, but let me point out something about the verbs here. When he says, by this we know, now I'm going to talk Greek grammar a little bit. Some of you are kind of up on this and some of you aren't. In Greek, a present tense means continuous ongoing action, okay? We just think of present tense means now, but in Greek it has a continuous idea. So that's what he, when he says, by this we know, that's the present tense. So in an ongoing way, we know. We know that, and then he switches to a perfect tense. Perfect tense in Greek means something happened in the past, but it has abiding results 
today. So it's something that happened and is continuing on. So he says that we have come to know him. So the perfect tense is the second part there. So present tense, by this we know, perfect tense, that we have come to know him. And by implication, still know him based on that grammar there. So if I came to know the Lord two years ago, I still know him. It happened and it abides with me. That's what he's saying. So the whole phrase is really, the, the whole we know phrase is just three words in the original language. We know that we have come to know. What? We have know that we have come to know him. There's a relationship with him. It's a real thing. A relationship has been established. He is my king. He is my God. And I am his child. And I am his servant. So whether that is real in my heart is the test or the evidence that we know him. So John gives us tests of authenticity and the book of First John is going to give several of those tests and we're looking at the first one today. So the first test and he repeats it in three times in, in just from verse uh, 3 to verse 6 using different words each time. So he's, he's kind of getting it into your head with a he always uses really simple language, but the way he uses it is clever. So he kind of keeps building on it, you know, kind of making sure you get it. So he starts right here in verse 3 with the most plain language. Some people call this the moral test. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That is so simple. Are you a commandment keeper? I mean, that's really the test. Or do you blow them off? You know, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus, but you know, I... I don't keep all of the commandments. I don't really worry about everything. And sure, I do some stuff that, you know, it's not really right and all of those kind of things. The verb before the words, his commandments, if we keep, goes back to the present tense. So it's talking about a continuous, if we are keeping the commandments. It's a life. It's a path. It's the path we're walking on there. By this we know that we have come to know him if we are keeping his commandments. So if we've decided along the way to stop keeping them or if we've come along to or come to a place in our life where we say, you know, they're not that important to me, then we cannot assume that we know him. You just can't say, I know him if you don't care about his commandments. If we're keeping them, that's a sign, it's a measure, it's an evidence that we know God. It's not the only measure. More are coming in this book, but that's basic. That is basic. A true Christian has a spirit-given motivation to honor God with his or her life. A Christian is not a person who's joined a church club. We talked a few weeks ago about the, the new life that the Christian possesses. It's, it's not a new life like, hey, I moved to Hawaii. It's great. I got a new life. It's not like that. <laughs> not that kind of new life. It's something amazing that's happened within us, within our hearts, our interior life, an awakening. We've become a new creation. A Christian is born again, born of the Spirit. A Christian has the Holy Spirit actually residing in him or her. A Christian has the law written on our hearts. So now you can be a church-going person and none of those things be true of you. None of those things happen to you. You just like church. You like to go. You think it's a good thing. You can be a minister and wear cool robes and a funny collar and not know him at all. There are many ministers like that. 
You can have advanced theological degrees and study all these things and all the theology and the ancient languages and not know him at all. Church life is just attractive to some people. Uh, you can make friends at church, nice people. Most Christians are nice and helpful and understanding and it's a good crowd to hang around normally and over time you can learn the Christian lingo that everybody sort of speaks even if you don't totally get what it's all about and do that kind of thing. Church people are going to assume that you're probably there for the same reason they're there so uh, if you're not born again it, it doesn't really matter that much because it all seems kind of harmless and you don't mind that people believe what they believe and you just sort of fit right in and that person is probably the typical person who needs to really pay attention to what John is saying here. Because if you don't have Christ, you don't have his salvation. The blood of his, the, the blood that he shed for us does not cover your sins. And when you die, you definitely want his blood to cover your sins. Now that's not even the motive to follow him just because I want my sins covered. It's because he's worthy to be followed. He's worthy of our love and devotion. We're his creatures and he's the creator and he did save us from our sins and just that he loves us that much to do that we should give everything we have to him. Do you know the Lord? That's actually the big question here. God is a person. He's not an idea. He's not an emotional experience. He's a person. We'll come back to that idea in a minute here. I, I, let's go back to the first century again where John is writing this um, and what John's people were facing. So those that were led off by the Gnostics were not interested in keeping God's commandments. That just wasn't what they were about. They found something better. They thought secret knowledge, insight into the mysteries of the universe, delving into the mysteries that go beyond categories like right and wrong. Ever meet people like that? There are people like that still. They don't call themselves Gnostics very often but there's a lot of goofy things out there. Some Gnostics believed they could indulge the flesh because the spirit was all that mattered so they can break all the commandments about that. Others were more ascetic. They, um, Self-denial was their thing to help free the, bod free the spirit from the body. They thought the body was a prison that that God that made the world trapped us all into that prison and we had to get out of it. And They, they were way too sophisticated for commandment keeping or thinking that God is someone you have to please by keeping his commandments. They just didn't care about that. And you can read all the Gnostic Gospels. I've got a book at my house. It's called the Nag Hammadi Library because they found a lot of these um, Gnostic Gospels. And uh, you, you know, if you go to a, a secular bookstore, there'll be something that the Lost Gospels of Jesus. They'll say something like that. And they're just they're just the old cult Gnostic cult Gospels. But um, you can read all the Gnostic Gospels, and you'll ruin your eyes looking for exhortations to keep the commandments of God. They're not there. There's no interest in that in the Gnostic world. A few weeks ago I read you a portion of the Gospel of Thomas. That's modern people's favorite Gnostic Gospel because it's so weird. But if you do a search through the Gnostic Gospel for the word commandment, do you know what you get? Nothing. <laughs> Zero. Nada. No mentions. If you look for the word obey, nothing. Not there. No interest. Can you imagine a gospel about Jesus where Jesus never mentions commandments or being obedient to God? That's a different Jesus. We don't have very many Gnostics these days, but we do have some pretty strange things in America. Most people aren't involved in kooky cults. Some are, um, but they don't do commandments. 
They don't do commandments. Much more common in the 21st century would be the religious person who says, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, but I will pick and choose the commandments that we're going to obey. I will, I will select, I am the sovereign of my life, and I will pick which ones apply to me. Now, you know what we call those people? No. Cafeteria Christians, <laughs> right? Well, I'll take a couple of those and a few of those, but not that one. And that one is not to my taste, that commandment. So if you meet somebody who says they're a Christian, but they get indignant or angry about obeying God's commandments, that person probably doesn't know the Lord. Or else they're a Christian that's having a really bad day. But if you're talking about the path, the walk of their life, that person would not be a Christian to say that, that kind of a thing. The awakened heart, the Holy Spirit that renews the heart and writes the law of God on our hearts, that heart cannot hate the commandments of God or be indignant about them. Because the true believer recognizes, as Paul says, the commandments are holy, righteous, and good. Even those odd commandments about food and things in the Old Testament, he's, God says those are holy, righteous, and good. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So whatever comes from Him is good, right? So to say, well, I'm God's man, but no, I have no intention in submitting myself to His commandments, that just doesn't make any sense. By saying that sort of thing, it does show that God is placed low, very low in a person's value system in their life, in their heart. He's low. He has a low priority. If your God is not a God that's infinitely worthy to be obeyed, then you don't know the God of the Bible. You've got a different God. You've got a God you made up or that somebody taught you. You can't say, He's my King. He's my Redeemer. He's my Savior and ignore Him. You can't do that. can't do that. To be blunt, if you claim Jesus as your Lord and you have no intention of obeying him, you're a liar. How dare you call me a liar? I'm not calling you one. The verse 4 is actually. <laughs> the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So you have to take it up with God. <laughs> and that leads John, to John repeating what we might call the moral test. And here's where he starts using different language. In verse 5, he's contrasting the true Christian from the liar. He says, but, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So instead of the word commandments, now he uses the phrase keeps his word. So we're talking about more than just rules, aren't we? We're talking about God's revelation of himself, of his moral will. So that's his word. That's not the church's word. It's not the pastor's word or the word of this ancient religion. It's God's word. His word. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul praises the Thessalonian believers for how they received the gospel when he brought it to them. Let me just read you what he says. He says, this is 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So what Jesus says and what his chosen apostles say is God's word. 
period. And that's the language John is using here. You often hear people in our culture speak very derisively about Christian morality with phrases like, well, the church says we have to do this, or clerics claim we have to be like this. Now, can churches or clerics or ministers or whatever make up rules that have nothing to do with the Bible? Of course, they can do that, and you can ignore them. But people say that about things that are clearly biblical. They say, oh, that's what the church says. No, that's actually what the Bible says. And if the Bible says it, then it's God's word. And if it's God's word, you are under this incredible obligation to fall on your knees and say, I will follow that. Yes, people can make up things and say things that aren't true and you have no obligation to them. You don't have any obligation to me because I'm a pastor. What, what is that anyway? But if God's word, you've got an incredible obligation to him. Well, the church says I can't live with Susie without a piece of paper saying we're married. In that case, the church is saying it because it's in the Bible. See, that was a Bible one. You and Susie are in sin. Anybody here named Susie? I'm sorry. To, I think we're not. don't have any Susies. Susie's what we call the lady that does our driving instructions on the phone. <laughs> Susie, you got to tell me before the turn. Okay, yeah, that kind of thing. We just call Susie's our general name for females. But, you know, our culture is very much like the first century Roman culture with regard to sexuality. I mean, there are no ethical rules, except maybe consent would be the only rule in our, in our culture. Most Americans agree that consent is important. Other than that, you do whatever you feel like doing with your body. Fulfill every craving. But who created human sexuality? Yeah, somebody said it. <laughs> God did. Who made the rules governing all of our behavior? Well, God did. It's his world. He designed us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for society. And we profoundly, intensely demonstrate that we are completely wrong about what's best for society. And he knows so much better. But let's go to another 1 Thessalonians passage. You might want to look at this one with me real quick. In, in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 2. So here the subject is, the Greek word is porneia. Guess where we get the word porn from? Which means sexual immorality. And por por pornographe is to write it or depict sexual sin or immorality. But I want to focus on how Paul talks about it because, um, and, and you know what, take the sexual part out of this. I'm going to read it as it is, but that's what he's talking about, porneia. But just, it, just think about it in terms of commandments in general, okay? Verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from porneia, sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Couldn't be any clearer, could he? 
And that's just amazing. So let's just, let's just look at what he said there and take the sexuality part out of it and just talk about commandments generally. What did he say? What is Christian morality generally? Well, it includes apostolic authority. That's where he started, which came from Jesus. So apostles have the authority. You know when people say, well, Jesus never said anything about that. Well, there's, yeah, he didn't say everything about it, but he gave apostles and gave them what to say about that, and that has equal authority to him. So, red-letter Christians, that doesn't count. The black letters count just as much as the red letters do. So, apostolic authority, the moral teaching stands as, and Paul uses this words, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, when an apostle speaks, that's a commandment from God, Christian morality is God's will for us, he says. It's something we need to know how to do and learn how to do those commandments. The opposite of it is behaving like people who don't know God, he says. God is the avenger of violating his commandments. And God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is sanctification, which is a long word for holiness, being a holy person. And... Last, if we reject it, we're not rejecting men, but God. So it's a very comprehensive look at the Christian's relationship to the moral commands of Scripture, all the moral commands of Scripture. So Paul is saying in a very complete way exactly what John is saying in 1 John chapter 2. And here's John's added contribution. Go back to 1 John if you're not there. And we're at the end of verse 5 now. But whoever keeps it, here's verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. That's what motivates the Christian to moral pursuit, to moral strength, to honor all of God's commandments. Why? Because we love God. We love God. Indeed, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to what? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength with everything you have to love him. If you don't love him, you might not be his. And since it is God who's the object of our love, then obedience to his commands is the most basic way that we show our love for him. We care about what you care about. Warren Wiersbe said it in a really helpful way. And let me read you what he said. Obedience to God is proof of our love for him. There are three motives for obedience. We can obey because we have to, because we need to, or because we want to. A slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey, he'll be punished. An employee obeys because he needs to. He may not enjoy his work, but he does enjoy getting his paycheck. He needs to obey because he has a family to feed and clothe. But a Christian is to obey his heavenly father because he wants to. For the relationship between him and God is one of love. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we cannot love God and have no desire to honor him by being obedient to him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So the perfection of our love is seen in this continuing obedience towards him. Full obedience. Then the end of verse 5, the very last little phrasing there, it says, by this we know that we are in him. That's how you know you're his. Now that, phrase, that ending part, by this we know that we are in him, some Bibles attach that to 
the sentence before and some Bibles attach it to the sentence after in verse 6. It doesn't really matter. It serves well both in both places, both ways. But in, in verse 6, John uses another idea to expand on what obedience to God's commandments look like. So here's verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you abide with Christ, you're to walk in the same manner that he walked. And you'll notice something quite amazing about Jesus. When you read the Gospels, one, two things about Jesus jump out at you. With regard to human beings, Jesus speaks with absolute authority over them. Jesus never says, well, you know, guys, I sort of think. Or he says, well, you know, I heard a rabbi say one time. No, he, he doesn't do that. Just this is how it is. Always to everyone. Very straightforward. He speaks with absolute authority when speaking to men. But in reference to his heavenly father, as a man, Jesus is entirely submissive. Completely submissive to the father. He was the perfect man in his submission. Flawless obedience. He said this, John chapter 4 verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You ever get hungry for something? His hunger was to do God's will, the Father's will. John chapter 5 verse 30, I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6 verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. I'm not even here to do my will. I'm here to be an obedient servant of the Father. On and on it's like that when he talks about the Father. And on and on when he speaks to human beings he has absolute authority over them. He speaks that way. You know even going to the cross was an act of obedience. Even though every fiber of his humanity recoiled at the thought of going but not my will but your will be done. Remember? So, do you see what John means here in verse 6 when he says, The one who says he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner in which he walked? This is taking the idea of just obeying to a whole new level. And that's why he's building this way. He talks about keeping commandments. He talks about keeping the word. And now he's saying, this is what Christ was like. And we have to be like that too. We have to walk in the way that he walked. Our, our, we ought to do that, he says. The one who says he abides in him ought himself. We don't live in a world of oughts anymore, do we? Even in school, they don't say, you, you ought to be this. Say, so how do you feel? Pursue your heart. Follow your feelings. But there's all kinds of oughts. Our civilization was built on the idea that you ought to be this and you ought to be that based on eternal truths. And so he's giving us an ought here. And the ought is perfect obedience to walk in the same way that Christ walked. Do you keep his commandments? Do you keep his word? Do you endeavor to walk in the same manner in which he walked? That should be your Christian purpose. A true Christian is growing into an obedient life. A life of integrity and honor and purity and service to others and love. 
Yeah, but somebody's got to look out for number one, you know. That's so true. That is so true. Who is number one? That's right. <laughs> yeah, you're not number one. You're number 10 million sixteenth. You're way down the list. It's not you. So do look out for number one. He created you. He sent his son to pay for your sins. So look out for number one. I just want to say this before we wrap up here. Um, I said early on we're talking about two paths. So two lifestyles. Two ways of thinking and being. It's a walk, right? Well, what if I love Jesus and believe absolutely that I should obey him and I care about that, but I fail? What if I break the commandments? That's a really good question. And there you have to take John, 1 John chapter 2 and back up back into 1 John chapter 1, right? Verse 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's verse 9 of chapter 1. Always go back to that if you blow it. James says in his little epistle, James 3.2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. That is certainly true. I certainly stumble. I certainly sin still. But we talked about that in chapter 1, didn't we? None of us is going to be morally perfect until we get to heaven. But there's definitely a path we're walking. And which way are you walking? What, what, is the, what is the path you're on? Now sometimes periods of doubt or sin can be pretty serious and they can last for a time. Some people just stumble and they, they fall down pretty hard. And it can be pretty serious. And we shouldn't be too quick to write off those people because they nosedived. They need to be loved and encouraged and encouraged that they can pick themselves back up and that First John 1 9 does apply to them if they would do that and get back on the path. You know you read about the New Testament churches there's a lot of messy people in those churches. Man Paul's telling them stop going to the prostitutes at the temple and all kinds of things are going on there. The New Testament church had serious problems with people breaking their old habits or falling back into bad practices they used to do when they were unbelievers. Sometimes like King David it, it takes quite a while to come out of repentance. It was at least a year and somebody had to come and get in his face about it. But you know when they did? He repented. I mean he really repented. He totally repented. But it was a year of out of fellowship with God, shutting God out of his life. David who wrote half the Psalms. The truth is a Christian can be foolish and divorce himself from all the means of grace that help keep us on track. He can ignore the word. He can not be a part of a church family. He can not pray ever or serve or examine himself. He can go through long periods of times where he doesn't do those things. And you say, well, is that really a Christian? Well, I don't know. God knows. But I know what our obligation to that person is. Get back on the path. Get back on the path. People can slip into a life that just doesn't look like Christ at all. Sometimes it involves substance abuse and it's just an overwhelming craving and people fall and fall and fall and fall into something like that. Sometimes it's pursuing the world's riches or honors and they just slowly let that crowd out all the things that really matter in life. Or an ungodly relationship. But she was so beautiful. 
or he filled all the needs of my heart. Those can make us very poor servants of the king, things like that. But if we're really his, if the new life is really there, if our heart has been awakened, God is not going to let us just do that. He's going to come after us. He's going to unleash the hounds of heaven. He's going to correct us. He's going to discipline us. He's going to wake us up. He's going to shake us. And he does do that. But our calling, our calling, our purpose for existence is always the same. Keep his commandments. Keep his word. Walk in the same manner that he walked. That's the first test. We've got more tests to come. Let's pray. Our great Father, we ask you to use your power because we're so weak sometimes to fix our hearts on you. Keep us from straying. May we love your commandments as much as we love you. May we walk the path you have so clearly set before us in the scriptures. And if we are here today for reasons other than serving you, open our hearts, awaken us so that we might know you, who alone is worthy of all our highest love and praise. We ask these things in your Savior's name. Amen.